0: Hello, welcome to the Saints and Scholars Podcast. Today we've we've got Micah Casewell back with us and he's going to be talking to us more about Thomas patient one of the men used by God to plant two of the earliest Baptist churches here on the island in Waterford and in Dublin. We're going to hear about uh, one of the early works that was written on Baptist ecclesiology that patient authored. I hear a little bit about the uh, theology that drove the man and, and try and think through what we can learn from him about uh, Baptist identity and about how churches can work together even today. We hope you find it helpful. If you didn't get to hear last week's episode with Micah where he began to unfold really the story of Thomas Patient's life, please go back and listen to it first. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy this particular episode in the Saints and Scholars podcast One of the things about Thomas patient that I think is really interesting, we, we sometimes, um, I think evangelicals, we, we know and value um, justification. And we, we see the priority of, see it by grace alone, faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. We, we, we see that and understand that as a priority in the church. But when it comes to these secondary, and they are secondary issues, like, you know, ecclesiology and Baptist identity, we we kind of want to sit on our hands on so many of those issues. And yet one of the things that really comes through in, in in this biography is, for Thomas patient that was such a defining identity mark. He saw the same distinction, justification is more important, but, but he still saw there being something very important in this Baptistic church model and especially b- practice of bap- uh, baptizing those who are regenerate. He, he writes uh, a very early text on baptism. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what's the main argument in the book and and, and in what way does it contribute to the development of Baptistic thought?
1: Yeah, he, you know, in addition to the two churches he plants, um, he has kind of two things uh, that he, well, uh, two documents that are also part of his legacy. He's one of the initial signers of the 1644 confession, which we refer to now as the first London Confession, And then he writes this book um, on, um, on baptism uh, that is, from what I can tell I mean there's, th- there's prior things written about the doctrine of believers' baptism from a baptistic perspective, before patient's book, but, but none of them are kind of a full-length treatment to the degree that, that patient does. So in some way, you could argue that this is maybe one of the first books, or maybe the first book, actually, Not it's not a pamphlet or something, on the doctrine of believer's baptism. Essentially what he does, and and I think this will, if your audience will hang with me a bit, I I think you'll see some helpful practical uh, um, application points here. In that Baptist, I think we have, when when done right, our theology really gives us uh, some helpful grids on thinking about Uh, partnership, and independence, and being exclusive and inclusive. You know, we we just have the tools in our theology to do all of those things in a very balanced way, and and Patient did that. So his arguments are that, uh, number one, (laughs) that uh, believer's baptism by immersion is biblical, and so much of his book is just making that case and, and walking through the text on that case, and what is remarkable is you read you know, today, Baptist theology, okay, what is believers baptism by immersion? We're all going to the same verses that patient went to back in the 1600s, you know, and and even, you know, um, I, I took some time to read some real influential Southern Baptist books, you know, from kind of from the 1900s and the late 1800s on that doctrine. And it was remarkable. It's the same verses, it's the same arguments. And so uh, to me, that's interesting, because um, I, I think, I think it is a plain teaching from the Bible, and so it's biblical. But he then develops more of a theological argument on on the covenants and how uh, how the covenants then relate. And so, I, I actually would like to do some uh, some more research on that on on his covenant theology. But but that's a you know th- this is Puritan era, and so in in the English Reformation, and so a lot of this theology is a little bit in flux. I would argue, mm-hmm. and so I don't fully agree with you know, some of the things that patient does, but, you know, kind of like a, a distinction between covenant theology and dispensationalism say, you know, a lot of this is a question of, okay, well, how does the old Testament and the new Testament relate? And so is baptism in the new Testament, is that a parallel or is that synonymous with uh, circumcision in the old Testament? Is this just something that you do, you know, like, do you, do we just baptize our babies and then they're part of, the church in some way. Now, maybe they're not, maybe wouldn't go so far as to say they're converted. And I think that'd be a heretical position to say, okay, they, they don't believe in Jesus because they can't talk. They're, they're a six month old baby. Um, and just by doing a, a good work, baptizing them that gets them into heaven. Well, of, of course we, we can't say that biblically, but you know, some of our our brothers, you know, in, in different denominations or so we yeah, have, but they're, They're in the community of faith in some way. And for some people, that's more vague than others. But what Patient does in his book, and consistent with what the other Baptists of that generation, and even today we would say, is, listen, you need to make a profession. of What baptism is, it's a sign, uh, it's an outward sign of what has happened internally to you. So when you're converted internally, you've been baptized by the Spirit. And so what Believer's Baptism by Immersion is, it's it's drawing this line in the sand saying, okay, I'm converted now. I'm I'm part of a different team. I'm in Jesus's family. I'm part of the church. I'm I'm saying this publicly, but also that becomes an an exclusive thing in a sense where that's how you then become a member of the church. And so it's, it's a wonderful, you know, for all Baptists in Ireland and everywhere, This is a really healthy thing about our, our theology, because functionally what it means is, is if, if that's the theology of our churches, it means, it means that we have what we believe are converted believers making decisions on, okay, how are we going to spend our missions dollars? And should, is that the type of pastor we should hire? Well, you need converted people making those decisions. And so what this you know so what patient makes this case is that you know this is consistent he, he makes a, a covenantal case uh, uh, for Baptist uh, theology now that uh, that draws a very sharp sharp rebuke uh, from a Presbyterian man in Ireland an English he's an Englishman as well but he's in Ireland and he writes a book against uh, patient's book and so in, in very typical Puritan fashion there's some there's some nastiness to it which is you know, nasty, but in some ways funny. But, um, but, but, but that's the issues that he's drawing. He, is, he makes the case that what, what Patient is saying is, uh, you know, he, he starts, he, he's mixed up on the covenants and he's, this is a covenant of works. Well, what covenant, uh, the, some of the terminology that Patient uses when talking about covenants um, and w- what are works and it's, I, I, I think that it's not as helpful and I, and I make those comments in the book. But essentially what he's doing is, is he's drawing a distinction between some of these covenants, which, which I think ultimately is helpful and
0: good. And one of the things that you've mentioned, but I think it's important to come back to, is like that there is a very evident ecclesiological concern Uh, and I think a concern that he highlights that is is just as true today as it ever was. Uh, In what way do you think that those aspects, and you've already started talking about some of them, but in what way did those aspects of ecclesiology, Baptist ecclesiology, that practice of baptizing, uh, insisting on it being regenerate people, being uh, Baptize upon confession, what impact does that have on the church itself?
1: Yeah. And, you, you know, you said it well on, you know, on your question before that, listen, we we recognize that uh, issues of ecclesiology maybe don't rise to the importance of, of issues of soteriology. However, that doesn't mean that issues of ecclesiology are unimportant, right? And so, and, and even just at a, at a functional level, okay, how are we going to hire a pastor how are we going to structure our church? Who Who is going to, are we going to do committees? Are we, is it a kind of a real radical form of congregationalism? Or are we going to have a session of elders? Are we going to, you know, th- these are just practical decisions that, that have to be made, but they need to be driven theologically. You know, um, th- there needs to be a theology behind that. And so, you know, some people say, well, there's, you know, these essential doctrines and then there's the non-essential doctrines. I, I think it's maybe more helpful to have some sort of, maybe third category of, okay, maybe, mm-hmm. it, you know, you can, obviously uh, I'm a Baptist, but man, Presbyterians are in heaven. Okay. I mean, and, and, you know, when R.C. Sproul passed away, I promise you he's in heaven. Okay. But we just agree. We disagree on our ecclesiology. Um, so it doesn't rise to the, the importance of sociology, but again, it doesn't mean it's unimportant. And so um, now I think it's a question of, do you, do you divide a church over issues of, of ecclesiology? Essentially, that's what Patient does. I don't think you do, uh, but it's, it's a different time as well. I mean, I think what, what he does uh, with Dublin and Waterford, I don't think there is anything wrong necessarily with what he does. Um, but, but those are questions, too, of, of division. Now, as if I have Baptist convictions, which I do, I just wouldn't join a Presbyterian church on the front end. Now, we've planted a church like what Patient did. And when, man, you, you know, we, we wrote the bylaws with our our lawyer and, and our, our team of leaders um, and we needed a theology that drove that. And so, you know, understanding ecclesiology was essential. I mean, we're establishing a church. And so uh, even as a church planter, I've seen the importance of it. And so it's not essential versus non-essential, but issues of ecclesiology are very, very important. So they're not non-essential issues. And I think when, when done right, they help maintain a healthy church, you know, because all churches are made up of people and, and a congregation uh, can make bad decisions. Uh, deacon bodies can make bad decisions. Elder teams can make poor decisions. You know, you, you can get a wolf in sheep's clothing on an elder team. Okay, mm-hmm. and so the relationship between an elder team and a pastor, and then the congregation. You know, thinking through all those dynamics, I, I think Baptist theology uh, gives us the the best tools to think through some of those things. And again, produces. Uh, I, I think I think that's an important aspect for, for healthy churches.
0: very much uh, I, again, I think just the fact that the people within the church, especially if they' if you're going to operate by a congregational foot at different times, you want to know that these people have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. and yet at the same time you've also made clear no church is perfect and they can still err. Though one of the things I think we can sometimes misunderstand about Baptists is we know that uh, churches are autonomous and, you know, they make decisions in-house led by their elders and the congregation coming together to vote on certain things. Uh, That's good. And yet one of the criticisms that sometimes, I think wrongly, but does sometimes get made against Baptists is, but, you know, if a church starts to err Or even if a church needs support or if they fall on hard times and need care, where does that come from? But one of the things, again, I thought that came through in your book really helpfully was this idea of interdependence that as an association of Baptist churches in Ireland, we do talk about. But I thought there was a lovely model of that right there at the very beginning in Dublin and Waterford. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship maybe that those early churches had amongst themselves but even with the English Baptist churches uh, is there any kind of details that we can uh, pick up on that and and what does it tell us about just the nature of interdependence between these Baptist uh, congregations
1: yeah and, and I and by the way Andrew, I love that you've sniffed that out because I think this is a very healthy and important conversation for Christians to have and, and Baptists to have and um, yes, we, we do believe in, in the local autonomy of our churches, and I, and I think that that's good and right. But that doesn't mean there's, there's a radical independence, and, and you certainly don't see that in the first generation of Baptists. They're very interrelated. Uh, they maintain good relationships with each other, and those good relationships really produce um, uh, just r- very healthy things w- w- when needed. So a, a couple of examples from history and then what it teaches us today as you referenced the, the Waterford and, and Dublin situation. So this is, um, this is a situation where a, a group of convictional Baptists led by Thomas Patient and Waterford uh, essentially rebuke another group who believes, has the same theology, but is living it out differently in Dublin. And it's a friendly rebuke. It's a loving rebuke, but it's a rebuke saying, listen, you, you need to change how you're, how you're living out your theology. And by God's grace, they ponder that, wrestle with that, receive that, and then plant a church in Dublin accordingly. And so that's an example of the the group in Waterford, led by Patient, they felt it was their responsibility to speak into those issues at Dublin. They didn't didn't say, okay, well, we believe in the local autonomy of the church, so i.e., we we have no grounds or anything to, to speak into these other people that we have relationships with. Uh, another, I think, very interesting account from, from Patience's time in Ireland. Um, this is maybe for modern years. Some of this seems silly, but, you know, there, there becomes this question of with Cromwell, he's the leader of England. He's not a king. He doesn't want to be a king, I would argue, uh, nor should he be a king. I mean, that's kind of the point of it. And so well, what do we call him? And so they land on this title of Lord Protectorate because of that becomes a very controversial thing for the uh, for the nonconforming church uh, Christians who were who were essential uh, to Cromwell's you know army I mean his army is Baptists or a smaller group most of them are Congregations or Independents and Presbyterians but uh, they really have a problem with that title you know why because you know our our protectorate is the Lord and Cromwell is not the Lord and so there, there's an interesting movement. It's a um, it's an end times movement uh, called the fifth monarchy that, that arises. And they, they really protest against this title and giving Cromwell too much power. Now on paper, maybe that makes sense in in, in his rights. Uh, but it, you know, I mean, this is not, you know, 2021 Ireland or 2021 United States where, you know, I can, I can critique our president all I want. I mean, that's a, that's a fine American tradition to, to mock our presidents, you know, Um, but that's not the case, you know, in, in the 1600s. And so um, William Kiffin back in London uh, gets word that a lot of the Baptists in Ireland are embracing fifth monarchy views. And he wisely becomes very concerned about that because he, he can see that where this is going is is they're going to pit themselves against the Cromwellian government and the Cromwellian government is just going to crack down on them. They're going to imprison them. It's going to crush, you know, what, what they're trying to do with their churches and spreading the gospel. And so Kiffin and others in London write to them and say, listen, they, they basically rebuke them for those positions make the case of the virtue of Cromwell and being part of this. I mean, you know, and be respectful of the government and all these things. And they heed that warning and, and they they back off and, and change that position. Now, again, those two accounts, the fifth monarchy account, the Waterford Dublin account, those are examples of this first generation of Baptists uh, not having some sort of radical independence, but, but actually working together on things. So those aren't the only things they work. I mean, they they have days of prayer, days of fasting that they work together on. Um, you know, they they plant churches together. And so there's a very interdependence in an associational relationship that happens that I, that I think it's that we, that we need to understand today in our generation of Baptists to understand how those things fit together. So Emmanuel Baptist that, that you pastor, that's a, that's a local autonomous church. Redeemer church is a local autonomous church and there might be ways for us to partner together. Uh, but if you were to see a major error in my life, you know, speak into it, but I've been, mean, yeah. So our churches are autonomous, but it also doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, relate as well. So in in, in Ireland, I know you all have the association and, and on an aside, I mean, you'll have a wonderful association. I, I've gotten to know some of the leaders there. And for the, you know, for the average, uh, you know, Baptist congregant in Ireland, um, you know, I, I know I'm on the outside looking in, but I think you should have great confidence in your association and, and be very proud of it. And and really participate in it because, you know, th- there is good things that come when you, when you can partner together, you know, you can link up for funds and plant churches and so forth. So in, in, in our context uh, I live in a, in a County, my, my, my town is Denton, but, but that's what, that's also our County. And so uh, we have what's called the Denton Baptist Association and um, our uh, the leader of that is, we call him a director of missions. And so Morgan was here yesterday for our grand opening. He and his wife, they didn't go to their church. They came here to support us. And, and that association has, you know, given us money and given us support and encouragement. And in, in the pandemic, they said, man, I know you guys are fried. Here's a gift card to go on a date with your wife just to get away." you know. So, so there's these um, fellowship things, you know, that happen when we partner together. But our church is not in a place like fully fund another church plans. But when we partner with, with 10 or 15 other churches, we are able to do that. And so okay. anyway, I think those first generation of Baptists that Patient was part of, they modeled that for us on, on how all those all those things should relate.
0: I, th- I think it's just a simple principle of Christian interest, care, and concern that they seem to have for each other that, just as you say, is so helpful and it's expressed still today that... If we really do see these people as brothers in Christ, where we're concerned, we we talk to them and raise that concern. And where we see need, we want to respond to it and we want to show love. I, I think that's such a helpful model to be reminded of. Maybe to kind of wrap things up, I could just, and there may be a little bit of repetition here, but uh, what can we learn from passion about the priorities of the early Baptist identity there in Ireland. What what do you think are the main uh, things to learn about what marked that early Baptist identity?
1: I think patience, um, you know, when you talk about essential non-essential doctrines and maybe this subcategory of ecclesiology, I I think he put those pieces together remarkably well in that he is a, uh, he holds true to that first London confession theology, so the, the these churches that he found founded were Calvinistic Reformed Baptist churches. So they prioritized soteriology and wanting a biblical gospel soteriology. And listen, this wasn't a stuffy, stale theology. I mean, this brother is a church planter. Okay. This brother gets on a boat, goes to a new country, plants churches in a very heroic way. So he's a theologian for sure, but he's an evangelist. And so that theology drives those views. So he's a very go- we we would say he's a very gospel-centered, gospel centered uh, gospel grounded person and minister. He puts those pieces together. However, he's got to organize his churches and he and he lets his his theology uh, drive that. So he's he's a Baptist by conviction, and that that then you know maybe this subcategory, if you will, his ecclesiology, you know, um, uh, drives the establishment of those. And so he he puts those things together very well. And I think that. By doing that, um, and I know there's now been generations of, of pastors and faithful brothers and sisters in, in those two churches in particular, uh, but patient got them off on, on the right footing, I would say, um, and, I, and I think that that's, that's very important. And so I think you know, what, um, you know, what, what that says for us today is, is listen, you know, our view of the Bible, our commitment to the word, our commitment to the gospel drives everything. You know, and, and, and push into what does the Bible say on these issues um, and live it out and be, be an evangelist, plant churches. I mean, again, what was so inspiring to me about patient was he, he essentially is doing what Paul was doing. And he's essentially doing what all of us are still trying to do today to be a, a faithful witness um, and to value the gospel, apply that to our lives, plant churches, share the gospel, see people converted. I mean that's that's what he was about, and so in in many ways he made the main thing the main thing, uh, which I think is is so refreshing. Um, and and I think as an ordinary Christian, um, I think he he provides a great model for us. Um, so that's that's what's inspiring to me about about Patreon.
0: Well, well, Micah, we're we're glad that uh, God brought you across Michael Hickens' path, and that through that Christian friendship and conversation, that uh, you became interested in. Uh, one of these early fathers of the Irish Baptist movement here on the island of Ireland. And that in his grace, God has allowed you to almost reintroduce you or reintroduce us. I guess one of our great, great granddads. So <laughs> thank you so much for the study, the time, the curiosity that has driven uh, your research and your writing And uh, just know that we're really grateful for the time even you've given to answer some questions for us today.
1: Well, thank you for letting me be on the show and the opportunity. And and, um, I know I'm a long way away, but there's an obscure uh, Baptist church planter in Texas that loves the Irish Baptist. And and and, and in all seriousness, I'm I'm very um, encouraged and even inspired by you guys. I mean, everyone uh, that I've met over in Ireland from, you know, guys at the Association with Marvin and Davey, but we, we talked about. Uh, pastor paul and and his wife uh, earlier and and now you andrew just i I am just so encouraged and inspired uh, by the work that you guys are doing so keep up the
0: great work saints and scholars podcast is available on youtube facebook and most podcast platforms if you've been enjoying please follow or subscribe to keep up to date with all the content as it comes out thanks for listening